Today's guest sometimes calls me Dumbledore, <laughs> but on other occasions she calls me Rasputin. Today's guest is the person who came up with the name for the podcast. Today's guest is our first female guest. Today's guest, it's her birthday. Welcome to Jessica Freud. <laughs> I'm here this morning with a very gleeful David Olney. How are you, David? I'm very gleeful. <laughs> it's good to hear, mate. I'm also here with a very special guest, as we've mentioned in the intro. How are you, Jess? I'm well, thanks, Tim. How are you? I'm very well. Happy birthday. Thank you. Congratulations on graduating. Thank you. <laughs> of course, to celebrate that, we have you here on the podcast, and not just because of those things, but also because you have some very insightful information to share with us today about anti-fragility. Can you tell us a bit about how you came up with the name Blind Insights? Oh, that's an, <clears throat> an interesting question, I guess. There's not that much behind it, to be truthfully honest. I think I've known David for quite some time now, and I think I've always felt very comfortable talking to David about his blindness. Would you say that, David? Yeah, think- you were always game to ask, I think, because, you know, the experience you had with you know, your brother, Curtis, you were just willing to go, well, okay, what's it like for you to do this, or how does this thing affect you? Yeah, and you've got true. an openness to asking. Yeah, so my brother's autistic, my brother Curtis is autistic. And so, yeah, I'm more likely just to ask questions about, Mm. you know, the way that people's disabilities or impairments affect their lives. And so I've always been very interested about that with David. And I think with David that it really, in a way, it wonderfully impacts the way that he views the world, Mm. don't you think? And I think it's such a special view that you have view pun intended um, that was the whole point of the title <laughs> and I thought you know I specifically asked you one day because you know you'd sort of mentioned that you wanted a name for the podcast yep. and I love making up names for things yes. I'm sort of one of those people cool and um, so I was quite excited by the challenge and um, I said to David I'm like did you want being blind to be a focal point of this podcast you know is that something that's important to you is that something you, that you really think should be a focal point because it's not all that you are. You're no. so much more than that. Mm. You know, it's it's a side note, right, in my mind. And so I thought, you know, you could pretty much do this whole podcast without anybody ever knowing that you're blind. Yeah. Mm. And what an interesting social experiment, right? Yeah, but also in some ways someone would have eventually gone, oh, he's not being truthful. Yeah, that's true. But so but I said to you, you know, did you want to make this a point of the podcast? And you sort of, you mused for all of about three seconds. Yeah, which is the longest I ever think about most important things. <laughs> and then you said yes. And I said, well, so you do want... And so I thought, okay, well, then we can play with words that involve being blind. Mm. And then I've always loved words with assonance, you know? Mm. And so I thought blind insights, I, I. Like yeah, I sort of right. just went blind. We need something with an I in it. And I thought blind insights just came to me. And it stuck. I love that there's actually a, like, not necessarily a science, but there is actually a, an it English a process. thought process about mm. how the name came together. That's awesome. Yeah. And if I ever have children, I'm going to try and make sure that the surnames have assonance for the first name. Because I think I, I just, I really like that thing. <laughs> like my friend um, developed a blog and she wanted a, like a fake name. What do they call it? A ghost. She was like a ghost. Name. An alias. An, an alias. alias. Yeah. yeah. And I came up with Holly Fox. Nice. So again, nice, assonance. Nice, nice. I yes. just think names like that just work. Uh, yes. Yeah. So if we say Leonardo DiCaprio, is that assonance? I think so. I think that's yeah. got some assonance. Because to my mind, that is one of the, that's a name that a star should have. 
that name works. Yeah. But if it turned into Leo DiCaprio, that doesn't work. Yeah. No. So there you go. That's that's your first take home tip from Jess. <laughs> When naming children. Yeah, naming children. <laughs> and just, podcasts. Yeah, just or naming anything yeah. in life. Um, you'll find assonance gives you a really nice balance to your words. Interesting. So, yeah, that was the story. And now, I mean, it's become famous and I was going to mention Blind Drunk. I don't drunk, think we're can. famous. Oh. <laughs> you can get rid of this I think, bit. I think we're working toward us. <laughs> There's some level of infamy. Well, we can hope. <laughs> See, I had a wonderful teacher in year 10. Who just, I'd been annoying in class one day and he goes, David, you're either going to be famous or infamous and I really can't tell. <laughs> one of the most awesome teachers I've had. I have, to, I have to try and find him. He was an amazing guy. He had a PhD in chemistry but was teaching year 10 social sciences, hmm. social studies. Cool. So, Jess, can you tell us a bit about what you're up to now in your post-uni life? Wow. That's a good question. I've been doing lots of different things. Mm. Essentially, well, should we take a step back, I guess? In some ways, I feel like I want to contextualize it because I feel like who I am is so much more than what I'm doing now, in a way, as strange as that sounds. And I don't want that to come across as like obnoxious or something. No, it's not. That that's it's absolutely, everyone is more than what they do. Yeah, well, and the th I think the thing okay, is- I know a way into this. Mm. Jess, fun thing to explain to the listeners. How did you go from podiatry to sitting here? Mm. That's true. Okay. So essentially I finished high school during the global financial crisis. Um, my dad, who no doubt is listening right now. Hi, dad. <laughs> Hi, Greg. <laughs> is, um, unfortunately, during the global financial crisis, he lost his job. That was a really tough time for my family. He's since sprung back and all is well again. But um, I got a bit paranoid during that time and started thinking, oh, I really want a job that will have some sort of job security. And I had some advice from people that, oh, if you work in health, you'll always have a job. Anyway, I was always really into athletics in high school. I was a really fit kid and thought podiatry was a good choice, like really interested in human movement and that sort of thing. And podi sorry, physiotherapy seemed like it was being a bit overdone at the time. So I went for podiatry, did two years of it after a gap year in South America, and then finally did my work placement and I hated it. I drove home and I was like sobbing. Oh. I got back to my mum and she, I was like, I can't do this. And then she was like, but you've got to do it. Oh, no. Yeah. Anyway, but then thankfully I, I quit anyway against my mum's advice and I sat the stat test because my GPA from podiatry was so rubbish I couldn't get into anything else. Uh, and I swapped to law and international studies at Adelaide. What mark will they let you into podiatry with? Oh, no, Not being rude and having a go at your mark, but that's bizarre. Oh, no. So what happened is I had quite good year 12 marks, but after oh, a but certain amount of time. Oh, but then the podiatry marks and they count them instead Correct. because you were miserable. Because I couldn't work out how the heck your podiatry marks could have... Okay, now it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So after you do a certain amount of semesters at uni, they that only take the instead. GPA. Wow. Yeah, okay. yeah. So unfortunately, if you've picked the wrong course and you hate it and you're doing terribly, it's then so tough to move. Yeah. Anyway, got into law and international studies, thank goodness. I think I chose to study that because during my break in podiatry, so, you know, during my summer holidays, I went to Europe. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I was sort of walking around and I was just absorbing the history and all that sort of stuff. And it's probably a bit cliche, right? But I realise how much I love that sort of thing. Like I love other cultures. I love understanding the way that people tick. I love thinking about the way that civilizations have, well, you know, the way that past civilizations have shaped the way that the world is today and things like that. And I thought, I really want to build on that. Mm. I don't know where the career is going to take me, but it's what I want to pursue. And so I thought, I want to do international studies. 
And then I had enough, I had lots of advice saying, oh, well, if you're going to do international studies, you should try to get into law with it mm. to sort of, I don't Edge know. Edge Yeah, make sure you try and get a job at the end of it type yeah, thing. Yeah, right. So, so I have a close friend who did that exact double degree and is working in marketing now. So yep. Nice. It, it, it took him in a very clear direction. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly what you would expect. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so once I started that, I, I really felt like I'd found my tribe. You know, I started volunteering with United Nations Youth. That was very valuable. I had some really sound advice from a career counsellor who said to me, you need to do three things during uni if you want to get a job. And those three things are keep a part-time employment, you know, whether that's Hungry Jacks or Coles or whatever it might be. Two, volunteer in your area of interest. And three, just keep your grades above a credit. Mm-hmm. And I still, I'm to this day, I maintain, I think that's really sound advice. Yeah, that balanced view is a very rare thing. Yeah. And a lot of people would benefit from advice like it. Mm. Mm. So I, I kind of tried to stick to that. And it, I think it paid off for me. I, I really do. I started working for a law firm part-time and, yeah, volunteering with United Nations Youth, being a facilitator. Then what happened? And then I finally did David's course. So David used to teach a summer school course called Applied Thinking for Complex Problem Solving. Is that what it was called? Applied thinking for complex problems. Yep. Yeah. Again, you've just comboed the name. Now it's been changed into complex problem solving. I find That's I do right. the same thing and do it like a hybrid version now. <laughs> yeah. And that that course was so transformative. It really was. Um, was the difference of it being summer school and just being nine days straight? Perhaps. And I think perhaps it was just the right course at the right time as well. I met some wonderful friends during that course, friends I still have today um, who might be listening Hi, guys. We learned about some incredible concepts and it just really changed my worldview. And it was in that moment that I guess David did become Dumbledore slash Rasputin. (laughs) (laughs) And I say Dumbledore because you're so wise and just so... Rasputin because I get her in trouble. No, no, (laughs) I didn't do it. It's not my fault. She didn't drink that bottle of red wine because of me. (laughs) Rasputin because you... Mischievous. You can be mischievous, but also I think you, for me, in this instance, I am obviously Queen Alexandra in the Russian Revolution and you are Rasputin. Um, you could pretty much tell me to do anything and I'd think it's sound advice. I'd be like, yeah. oh, sure, okay. As we've talked about before, it's a good thing you're a girl, otherwise you'd be at two commando by now. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> so David helped me get this wonderful scholarship where I was able to... Well, no, I just helped you make it read well. Well... You did all the work. Again, you applied what the career counsellor had said and all I did was help polish up the document. Yeah. That's the easy bit. David helped enormously. You really did. And then I went, uh, so the scholarship took me to Peking University in Beijing. I studied law there and then I was fortunate enough to intern with the United Nations in Bangkok. Holy cow. In Mm -hmm. terrorism prevention, which was excellent. That was very good. I helped facilitate the United Nations Youth Peace and Security Consultation for the Asia-Pacific. I really enjoyed that. I think the topics of youth and security, like sort of the nexus of those two things, is something that I'm very passionate about and interested in, and that is where I hope my career will take me. But for the moment, I'm working at Qantas. Oh, lovely. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, a bit left of (laughs) centre. Yeah, but international, good dose of corporate social responsibility. Yeah. It needs to be innovative because it's a hard industry to survive in. Mm Mm-hmm. It's got to do the right thing or its name will be mud. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a decent dose of conscious capitalism growing at Qantas mm-hmm. and it you know, appears Alan Joyce is taking it down that path more towards sort of a Southwest Airlines model of genuinely being an ethical company as mm. time goes on. 
Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of positives there. Mm. Let's start with getting on a plane to South America at 17. Because <laughs> how many Australian girls do that? Mm, true. <laughs> Only crazy ones. Mm. <laughs> you know, when I think about what drove me to even want to take a gap year and go to South America, I'm not quite sure what it was. You know, usually with life and you make, you make a big decision about something like that and you can sort of take it back and you can kind of work out, oh, that's why I wanted to do that. But with taking a gap year and in particular going to South America and wanting to volunteer and not doing the standard, I don't know, Kentucky Europe adventure like a lot of other gap year students, I'm not sure why. I think I just perhaps I just always had quite a genuine fascination with South America. At some point I must have watched some TV programs as a child and just been fascinated by it. Yeah, ruins and llamas and... Yeah, whether it was like the wild thornberries Mm, or like... mm. I know that sounds ridiculous. No, not at all. But... But it was in deep at some level. Yeah. As you're talking about it, it sounds more like you just wanted to do the thing that was not standard Mm -hmm. as opposed to this is the specific thing that I wanted to do. And any kind of inspiration, whether that be the wild thorn breeze or the llamas, um, (laughs) was enough to be like, oh, this is straying from the standard path that I could be on, you know, doing the gap year, going overseas. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So I think you're right. It's, It's almost like I've always wanted to push myself to be anti-fragile in hindsight. I don't know what's mm. caused it, but it's like I've always pushed myself to take risks. Yeah, and not silly risks. <laughs> yeah, going to South America is not the normal, but neither is it stupid. So part of being you know, anti-fragile, and we're kind of leaping in a roundabout way, is mm. you push your limits, but you don't aim to destroy yourself. Mm. You don't take risks that are likely to end in destruction. Mm. You take risks that are likely to increase your ability to deal with the next slightly bigger risk. Mm. So again, South America as a whole, uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. Yes, you were almost kidnapped. I was. I was almost kidnapped in Bolivia. That's, yeah. But the whole point is you <laughs> ran towards the store with the bright lights and the security guard out the front. Yeah. Even when it went wrong, you didn't do the stupid how do I destroy myself thing. You did the how do I get out of this by doing a rational situational analysis and acting on it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I And it's interesting. Yeah, I look back and I'm like, how did I learn that? I'm fascinated by that. Hmm. You know, I was fortunate enough. So the situation was that I... I had already been in South America for about five months by that point mm. and was feeling a bit, I'll use the word cocky, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. as an 18-year-old Jess. And, like, to describe myself, I'm, like, five foot eight, quite tall, um, very non-Bolivian looking. Like, I'm in this <laughs> Yeah, you of, stick out. <laughs> I say five foot eight because Bolivian people are typically very short. Mm. So I really stood out in this crowd. And I remember I was wearing a hot pink jumper. Because I was 18. So I really, really stood out. And um, I went into this ATM, withdrew cash, and then these guys pulled up next to me in a white van. It sounds like a fake story, but it's not. It's a real story. Um, And they jumped out the back of the van and started chasing me. Oh, man. Like whether they wanted to grab me or just mug me or whatever it was. You don't know what the – it's better not to know. It's better not to know. When I say I almost got kidnapped, it it sounds a bit more dramatic than what it maybe was. It perhaps would have just just been a mugging. But in any case, it would have been awful. And so, yeah, I did for some reason. I just thought I need to cross this street. There's security guards right there. Mm. I'll run into that shop. I don't know what's going to go down from there, but there's some guys with guns because mm. it's Bolivia. Everyone's got mm. guns that's mm. guarding shops. So, wow. yeah, I and I just wonder, I'm grateful for the way that I responded to that. 
because it sort of dawned on me since maybe not everyone would have responded like that. Mm. But it's things like that that I think have perhaps made me an anti-fragile person. Well, and, you know, once you got the new Colombo scholarship going to Beijing, mm. being in the midst of a, a country that's going through massive transformation, you know, then Thailand with the UN, the same thing, you keep going to places where it's not overtly dangerous, but you can't be who you were yesterday. Mm. There's always something new to deal with. So when an adventure came to the point where, you know, I read Andy Fragile and said, hey, Jess, go read this. Mm. And it was like you had a lovely light bulb moment of, oh, here's someone who's written a book, you know, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, mm-hmm. all about what you've done as some sort of default, at least since you were 17. Mm. Now, Jess makes a lot more sense than, you know, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Taleb, <laughs> for one of the brightest people, is also basically incomprehensible and I'll go sorry Jad yes I know he's a fellow Lebanese person you're (laughs) way more sensible than he is it's okay and you're probably smarter than him too it's just he wrote an interesting book Mm. listening to him because you can he is on a few podcasts yeah yeah Mm. he, he's out there. He, mm. he is out there and he, he almost overuses analogous. To the point where yeah. you don't even know what the original concept yeah, was. Yeah, that's right. Mm. You know, it's like someone just keeps putting tiny little pictures in front of your, you know, tiny little chunks of songs and you go, well, what? Mm. Yes, it's a montage, but a montage of what? Mm. Well, this is why we have Jess in today so that we can show what anti-fragility looks like. like. Mm. Yeah, because I'd rather have a consistent image than a montage of, okay, that was a chicken and now we've got, what, pasta. <laughs> I think anti-fragility as a concept is so interesting. Wait, should we explain what anti-fragility Absolutely. is? Absolutely. I'm, I'm conscious of that because we're talking about the term, but perhaps we need to define it yep. or define the concept. Did you, you go want, first and I'll, do that? Okay. And, I'll, and I'll add in and Tim can ask questions to both of us. No worries. I'll do my best, David, but I'm sure David would be far more eloquent, but I'll give it a crack. So essentially the way that I would describe anti-fragility versus being robust versus being fragile Uh, They're the three categories, if you like. It's different ways that people respond to traumatic events, I think. It's the way that people respond to adversity in their lives. Or even if you just call it stress, the the broadest thing. What do you do when you're stressed? Correct, yeah. So, oh, sorry, I know you hate the word correct. That's right. He does it on the podcast. I know. I try to to do it as rarely as I can, which is about once per podcast. (laughs) Couldn't help myself. Anyway, so to summarise it succinctly, you would say that somebody that is fragile will have a stressful period in their life or will face some sort of adversity. And if you like, they'll be worse off for it. Mm. You know, I almost think of it like you've got a vase. The vase breaks. Mm. You know, does that vase come back together as a whole, right? Somebody that's fragile will be missing pieces, Mm They'll have put their vase back together, but there'll be some bits left on the floor. It'll look wonky. The glaze won't look right. The super glue will squish out the corner. Right. You know it hit the ground. It's worse off than it went in. Correct. And that's the key point. They're worse off because of the stress. Mm-hmm. They're worse off because of the trauma. Mm-hmm. A robust person, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I can understand from Taylor, his hypothesis is that the majority of society is robust. Well, it certainly aspires to that, but doesn't inspire any further. Right. And that notion is perhaps that you'll drop the vase and you'll have all the bits back together. In other words, it'll be exactly as it was before. Mm. You know, you, you will spring back and you'll be no worse off for that stress or that trauma, but you certainly won't be any better off for it either. You will sort of spring back like a jack-in-a-box. Mm. Mm. 
The third category, which is supposedly the minority of people, uh, are people that become bigger and better because of the adversity. You smash the glass, but you've created a beautiful mosaic from it. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got a better object entirely. The, uh, <laughs> Japanese have understood it for that. Vase example have understood that for ages. It's called kintsuge. Really? Yep. And it's where they will smash bowls on purpose and then put them back together with gold. Yep. Because ah. it's more beautiful and more amazing with that random pattern. Well, well okay. Well, perhaps that's the better. Well, it's, it's, the point is, is like, and, and Nietzsche would have said that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, stronger. that people yeah. have understood this for a really long amount of time. It's yeah. just mm. that we put it into kind of more like a scientific method. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there, there's also now a psychological method growing, mm. um, which is the idea of post-traumatic growth, mm. that about 50% of people who come through trauma mm. go, I'm better for what I've been through. I've learned such big things. Mm-hmm. I believe in myself more and more competent and effective mm-hmm. that even though I didn't like the trauma if I had to give up the gains well I'll go through the trauma again to maintain the gains mm. so in a sense Talib has gone through sort of a philosophical process to get to anti-fragility whereas part of the psychological establishment has gone through a very slow process of getting to the idea of post-traumatic growth mm. and post-traumatic growth I think makes a fair few people uncomfortable because they really, really don't want to have to go through the trauma to get the growth. Mm. Whereas the nice thing about anti-fragility being a philosophical idea is you can play with it simply as a concept. No one's saying go out there and do the terrible thing to yourself right? or experience the traumatic thing. Mm -hmm. It's just think about it. And I, I love one of his examples, which is an individual restaurant is normally fragile. You know, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. A very successful restaurant might hope it's got to the point of being robust. But if you look at the restaurant strip in a big city, you know, the main street that is, you know, half restaurants, as a whole, the restaurant district is anti-fragile because as one restaurant tries something stupid, like the Korean places that make you cook your own food on a rock, mm. <laughs> some other place realises, no, people like it to be cooked for them. Oh. So the rock cook one goes under, the one that cooked before you survives, and restaurants as a whole have become more anti-fragile as a group as a consequence of the one that went under and the one that learned from the experience. Mm. So it can be individuals are anti-fragile. And this is the point in Talib where he gets so incomprehensible. Mm. You can't tell in the book when he's talking about individuals or individual versions of things Mm. or where he's talking about full systems. Mm. So we individually might aspire to being anti-fragile. You know, the lessons just seem to learn in South America suggest she's individually done it, but we keep coming back to the same question over coffee, beer or wine. How do you genuinely get kids in school en masse to being anti-fragile? How do you get a group of undergrads by the end of their degree to be anti-fragile? Can you teach it? How do you get a system Mm. to be anti-fragile? And that's normally where we ended at about midnight where we're losing our voices and it's time for her to go home and me to go to sleep. True. So I guess this is the point where we, we talk about this conversation, except it's not midnight. No. And we're not drunk. You've got coffee. We've How got very coffee. strange. <laughs> it's I, not midnight and we're not drunk. I do think it's fascinating. You know, can we teach? Well, that's another point, right? Is this something that's developed during childhood or well, is this something you can cultivate as an adult? This is where we always start and mm. look back at both our childhoods mm-hmm. and go whatever degree of anti-fragility we both have, we have for very different reasons, but can identify the characteristics in each other. Yeah. Me, from my experience of being blind, just from her experiences of her brother having autism, 
you know, her mum and dad divorcing and having to work out, you know, well, what do you do when you go from having one household to two? Mm. Just these big issues you had to think about. Mm. Me working out how to be a little blind kid in a side of world where I worked out kids are dangerous, they don't think. Mm. I have to get along with grown-ups. Mm. Yeah, but they're no fun, but I need to get along with them because if I don't, I can't do anything. So when you have to think your way through things, well, most of the people around you are deliberately not thinking. We keep coming back to the same point of that's the beginning of anti-fragility. Yeah. Neither of us were super cocooned as children. No, we had to deal or else. Mm. I, if my mum or my dad is listening, they will laugh because they would say I was cocooned. Yeah, but the whole point is but- <laughs> you, know, you were going between two different sets of rules for how to be, yes. two different sets of expectations. That's still enough diversity that you could have found ways to game the system or be confused by the system. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of kids of divorced parents who find the instability of that going between two worlds really destructive. Mm. Whereas you just used it as, well, okay, there's two worlds, deal. But then perhaps it's further back than that for me then, you know? Uh, Was I anti-fragile even before that? It's interesting, isn't it? You can sort of dig and dig and perhaps to some extent it's just genetic. To some extent it's you almost can't explain it. I'm not sure. Look, I don't mind the idea of of nature via nurture that some people, there may be a gene for being anti-fragile, but again, if the experiences didn't, prime it, it and build on it mm-hmm. and so you know this is the thing and it's interesting because Jess has the, the very interesting contrast of having done applied thinking in summer school with a group of people who en masse moved fast mm. she's also you know helped out by pressing the buttons on the videos for half of last year's with a group who were moving nearly as fast but not as fast because without the intensity of nine days straight over two weeks there's a different dynamic Mm. Yeah, she's now in a corporate environment with the whole point of an airline with an incredible safety record is that the institution as a whole is probably about as close as anything I can imagine other than a special forces unit to being anti-fragile as an institution. Mm, That's true. So the weird thing is your experiences you're getting at Qantas Mm. match with my weird experiences of living in the mess at Tucumando going, ooh, look at all the similarities. Hmm. Look at the significance hmm. of anti-fragility as something built into the system. Yeah. Now, the systems do very careful selection. Qantas picked you. From your description of a lot of the grads you're working with, they picked other very motivated, self-confident, willing to take small risks, hmm. willing to admit when they're out of their depth people hmm. who would add value hmm. in order to help maintain what is essentially a progressively more and more both anti-fragile and conscious capitalism environment. Yeah, it's true. You know, the whole point of selection for special forces is if you ain't anti-fragile, you're not going to pass go. Mm. You aren't going to get through selection. Mm. You know, two commandos' big phrase in selection is, is this candidate trainable? Mm. And that doesn't mean in a boring sense. Mm. That means it's when we put hard things in front of them and we teach them how to do them, we can teach them how to do the things, but we can't teach them to cope with the micro failures along the way. Mm. Only they can cope with the micro failures and keep getting back on their feet. And that's a large part of anti-fragility. Yeah. It's being resilient in the face of those sorts of mini mm. adverse events. Yeah, that you just keep ending up back on feet going, I'm going to fall down again, mm. yeah. but I'm not going to fall down for that reason. Mm. So what you know, you've seen where you're working now, what I've seen from training people, is there are environments who select people who are already on the anti-fragile path. Mm. 
Yeah. And they make up their workforce. They make up the community, the tribe, mm. out of anti-fragile people, mm. which means there's far more of them than you might think when you first look. Mm. But there's also environments that are full of people where if you go boo, they're all likely to need therapy. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, which I guess brings us to the point of, you know, well, perhaps one, do we really want a society full of anti-fragile people? Would actually that be a good thing? Or, you know, do we need robust people? Do we need fragile people? And two, if the answer is yes, we should be aiming for everybody to be anti-fragile, well, how do, how do we cultivate that? And should we be cultivating that? Okay, well, I'll leap to a historical example here as a way into this and go, World War Two, when the Germans started you know, bombing the shit out of London, there was an initial fear that the level of psychiatric casualties would be just monumental. And what happened was beyond everyone's descriptions, everyone's hypotheses, and that is that the people who were going to break broke early and then very few people broke. That there was an initial high level of psychiatric casualties from random bombing and then as the war went on it stayed very low. Most of the people who weren't going to cope didn't cope early and that was the end of them. What coping with bombing suggested is most people are more capable of post-traumatic growth than they would ever give themselves credit for. Mm. So a whole society under pressure needing to function, most people did. Most people grew into a form of post-traumatic growth slash anti-fragility and the two aren't interchangeable but most of the writing about World War II and mass bombing is written from the post-traumatic growth perspective. Because that's the first thing where we have lots of evidence. We know how many people in London broke down in screaming heaps and needed psychiatric care for the rest of the war. And the numbers were far lower than anyone predicted. Mm. So are there fragile people? Yes. Will most people at least hit a minimum of robust? Yes. Do a surprising number step up when it is necessary? And they're shown how? Absolutely. Mm. So... You know, the question we keep getting back to at 12 o'clock when we're losing our voices and we've drunk too much is then how is it we live in a society of passive fragility? Mm. How the hell did it's, we get here? It is passive, but is it also genetic? I, look, this is kind of abstract, right? And mm. I, I'm going to suppose that there is a reason to have fragile people. Mm -hmm. Scale is important here. I forget the gentleman's name. The Taleb? Guy who, yeah, yeah, Taleb. Yeah, Nassim sorry. Nicholas Taleb. Taleb? Yeah. Oh, Taleb, yeah. Talib supposes that, you know, if you were to jump, jump a height, jump off a height of 10 metres, that you would probably die or cause serious bodily harm as opposed to jumping one metre 10 times. Mm -hmm. And the same uh, is true of immunisations, which is kind of a good way to think about this anti-fragility is that, you know, we have flu season right now. Instead of getting the full-blown flu passed you by someone else, you go and get the shot, the vaccination. Mm. The vaccination is just a very small dosage of that uh, mm. illness mm -hmm. so that your immune system knows what to expect and can effectively fight it off. Mm. If everyone were anti-fragile, if everyone were, you know, fighting off these diseases without, without the vaccinations mm -hmm. um, because they've effectively just grown stronger over time, we, we would not know when to expect the 10-metre jump instead of those one-metre jumps. I think that in terms of having fragile people is an early warning sign of... Yeah, of when there's a problem. Of when there's a problem. But, but let's put a, a, your thing on this with vaccination that's very critical. Mm. You need to vaccinate enough people in the population for vaccination to have big public health value. 
So the problem with anti-vax isn't anti-vax is I have a huge problem with you and you're not getting invited on the show ever (laughs) is you put the whole herd at risk by being dumb. If we all have the vaccinations, then when a few people get sick, enough of us are healthy enough to look after them because we know the majority of us won't go down with the illness. So the point of vaccination is to build anti-fragility. It's that the people who still are going to get sick Mm. have plenty of people around them who can look after them. Mm. So vaccination is a form of social anti-fragility. You're deliberately structuring a situation in which the majority are not going to be at risk. Mm. And Mm. the thing with the one metre jumps, and I think this is a good way to get into this, would we want to jump 10 metres? No. Mm. The first time you jump a metre, does it hurt? Yes. Then you learn to bend your knees and your ankles. At two metres, you learn to roll. At three metres, you learn to roll at least a couple of times. At up to four metres, you learn to not just roll forward or backwards, but how to also roll sideways to absorb shock differently. You can learn to take you know, a four metre drop if you learn to roll properly. Mm. You listen to descriptions of coming in on a parachute fast and hard, and without the training to start rolling, you'd mm. break everything. Mm. Mm. So in multiple areas, we go, we'll start you with the tiny one. So part of anti-fragility is if it's in one person, they just keep pushing, pushing, pushing. And if we look at the world of extreme sport, you know, what's happened in sort of extreme skiing, skateboarding, Mm. other sports, downhill mountain biking, human bodies aren't getting any better. They can't. Mm. But the quality of the training to keep pushing to get higher levels of competence but also more ways to pull disasters back from the brink. We're not just seeing any fragility in one skater, one snowboarder, one skier. We're seeing that that person works out, when this happens, do this. Mm. So the community as a whole become more effective, more anti-fragile. So, so I guess the take-home point that you're both saying is that we need fragile people in society so that the rest of us can learn. Mm, but also... When one of us does something anti-fragile, in a better situation, our anti-fragility becomes a learning mechanism and a support mechanism for other people to transcend us. To go, well, I very nearly broke my ankle doing that. Mm. When I teach you to do it, I'm going to teach you about the warning signs of when that's going wrong. Mm. So you save it before you go. So part of, you know, the training in elite sport, you know, in extreme sport, the part of training in reinforcement training within special forces is we are going to teach you to do a hundred things that can kill you mm. well enough they won't mm. it's deliberate training for anti-fragility so if we look at this broadly you train enough people a bit further to deal with physical stress to deal with emotional stress most of them come out of it not only in good condition but able to train other people to get to that level of good condition and with an openness to someone transcending them and being able to teach them the next step. So anti-fragility, you know, if it's explained in systems terms, which Taleb tries and, in my opinion, fails, mm. because the restaurant example makes the point, we break a few people, but restaurants as a whole get better. Well, it, it doesn't really stick. But in the way that Qantas learns from near misses, well, not only learns, passengers. but if anything, I mean, they recover in a way that 
can be viewed as like actually quite a positive thing. Mm. You know, quite often with Qantas, they'll have an adverse event, but somehow they've bounced back and the press is positive because of it. And you look at that incident where there was the detour to Melbourne, Adelaide, Canberra flight where Mm. they had to release all the oxygen masks. I mean, that was far less than ideal, but really they were applauded for their reaction to that. Yeah, because they learnt another lesson. They confirmed all the training. They proved Mm. all the training works. So, again, Mm. you've both studied high reliability organisations with me. The end of individual anti-fragility is high reliability organisations that can recruit people who don't start anti-fragile but Mm. get them there. Mm. So Special Operations Command is recruiting anti-fragile. Qantas, ideally, is not recruiting anti-fragile. It's recruiting robust and specking people up through the quality of their systems. So you think it is trained? Oh, yeah. I think you can, for truly extreme things, you can find people who've got themselves on the anti-fragile path and push them further because you only have limited time. Mm. But, you know, high reliability organisations like emergency boards, aircraft carriers, you know, airlines, they recruit robust and make anti-fragile. Of that, I'm absolutely convinced. You know, I'm almost too, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of being too on board with everyone being anti-fragile because I can see so many positives and I'm finding it really hard to identify any kind of risk if everyone were to populate uh, that. Because anti-fragile doesn't mean crazy risk. No. It means take the next little risk. Wait, but it also means that it, we can't conflate, I guess, fragile with being sensitive. No, Correct. no. Mm. Fragile is when the hit came, for whatever reason, you could not even come back to the state you were in. Mm. Mm. And you know, it was like when we were talking about meritocracy. Mm. A meritocratic society that we want to live in is one that says, we'll let you take risks and win, mm. but we're also going to make sure people don't go under mm. because we want to live in a society that doesn't break people mm. or let people be broken and get lost. Mm. Well, and I think that this is perhaps where it becomes quite interesting when you start thinking about mental health. You know, is it fair to say that people with you know, mental health, uh, what term should I use, ailments, you know, if, if, if you have uh, clinical depression or anxiety, you know, it's not really fair to say those people are fragile. No, and we don't mean it in those terms. No, because, we don't. Yeah, this is a thing with mental health. The best authors make the point, the difference between coping and not coping, mm. having a disorder and not having a disorder mm. is the coping skills you have or the coping skills you can learn. Correct. So, so what we're saying is that you know a, a move towards robustness or anti-fragility is to have more coping skills. Mm. To not have them is just you don't have them and mm. there are consequences of not having them. Mm. That doesn't mean you can't learn them. But because you've had a big hit, mm. you may only learn a few. Yeah, it's strictly about the way that you respond to stress. It's about the way that you respond to adversity. Yeah. It's, it's not that you are a strong person or you are a weak person. Mm. You know, that's not it at all. It's about your response. Mm. And I think perhaps in, in sort of dwelling on this, right, I think perhaps the way that you can, you can manifest your own anti-fragility, the way that you can become more of an anti-fragile person is to place yourself in situations where you face little risks all the time. Mm. Do you think that's, that's fair, David? Well, that's very much the David Goggins argument of if you want to double down on what you're good at, that's great. But in the long run, that will make you fragile because most of what we're good at is narrowly defined. So if you want to not be fragile... You need to do uncomfortable things every day because you will become inured to them. Mm. Some discomfort becomes easy. More discomfort becomes easier. Consequentially, when something is adverse, you don't freak out. 
you roll with it, you take the small hit, you get back up and you move on, having learnt avoid that problem if possible. Mm. David, have you found yourself more immune to the shock and or displeasure of rain since your cold showers? Yeah, but for me, cold, well, rain's never been bad because the temperature of rain's bad because I can't hear. Mm. So the white noise the last few days here in Adelaide, listeners, the last few days here, we've had, I know, 15 mils a day, something like that for the last three days, which means for me, when I walk around with my cane, I can't navigate by sound anymore. Mm. I'm navigating purely with what the cane finds because I'm walking inside a world of white noise where the predominant noise is the rain hitting the hood on my jacket, Mm. which from my perspective is terrifying Mm. if I let it. Mm. because I am down to the cane and that is it. Mm. Now, normally the sound is far bigger than the cane because sound is giving me distance. The cane is giving me close. So you know, on rainy days, I'm down to a world one metre in front of me. That's it. Mm. So to me, this is where the cane skills and the doing it every time it rains. And all right, I copped out Tuesday night. You know, Tuesday night, it was meant to hail and I was meant to meet one of my former students for dinner and that would have meant walking four blocks from you know, the apartment to the pub to meet Sandy. And I just texted and said, man, can we put it off to the weekend? <laughs> like I'd been out all day already doing this and the idea of doing this to go have fun, <laughs> mm. of one more walk in the rain and then knowing that the walk home would probably be with four pints of beer in me, mm. that's just going to take not just the joy out, but be genuinely hard work and my risk of screwing up would have gone up dramatically. Mm. Like I probably would have Ubered the four blocks just because my chances of screwing up would have been too high. Mm -hmm. That's a point where I would go beyond testing and improving anti-fragility to just moron, what were you thinking? That was was the 10 metre jump. Yes. Mm. That would have been like me going to Somalia on my gut. Precisely. (laughs) And wearing a mini skirt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and then, so I think it's like, that's an interesting point, right? Like you're constantly in this situation where you're facing risks Mm. and that's probably what's helped you become such an anti-fragile person. I mean, Mm. in some ways I think you are the, David, in some ways you are the epitome of anti-fragility. <laughs> on a good day. But again, if we look at my you know, shins at the moment, I've got a wonderful scab on both shins. Because mm-hmm. in the last three weeks, I found two things that the cane missed. And thank goodness we're back into winter and I'm in jeans. Because mm-hmm. the one on my right shin, I would have bled like a stuck pig if there hadn't been denim over it. Ouch. As it was, the jeans got fairly bloody. No. But if that hadn't been jeans. But again, that's just like a shrug, fuck it, move on moment. You know, good thing jeans are dark. Because <laughs> that was at 9.30 on the way to teaching at uni. Oh, no. So should we be identifying people as anti-fragile or should we just say that it's an anti-fragile... Spectrum. Uh, not even a spectrum, but a tool set that you can use when you're responding to It's things. a toolkit that eventually a toolkit. becomes a habit that becomes a defining characteristic. Mm. Yeah, I'd second David on that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'd like to think it is a toolkit, mm. but... For so many people, they are so entrenched in their category Mm -hmm. that it is who they are. Um, But I think that the more people that perhaps learn about this concept and are cognizant of it are perhaps more likely to become anti-fragile because then you recognise it. Or at least strongly Mm -hmm. robust so they're more confident. And our argument for this, we always get back to it about 10 to 12 too when we're both losing our voices and knackered, is the world is getting so frightening. Mm. Yeah. 
the world is getting so frightening for the decades in front of us mm. that if you don't have a sense of personal effectiveness, the risk of the world being overwhelming mm. is just getting bigger and bigger and that is unacceptable. Right, People it's that whole apocalyptic smart. anxiety thing. Yeah, and mm. you have doses of that where you go, mm. why should I do this? What if the world ends? Yeah, absolutely. And go, I have Jess, that. even if the world ends, you'll be fine because you'll manage to surf on it. Like <laughs> there'll be a wave and you'll be on top of it. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a real thing for our generation is that whole like, oh my gosh, what's the point of this? You know, is the world just going to turn mm. upside down? But I, I think people have been thinking that forever, right? And, and my grandpa the, pointed that out to me. Yeah. He's like, we thought that during the Cold War. Yeah. That our, like, the next decade was going to be awful. But, you yeah. know, the world keeps pushing on. And and the classic Cold War example of that is it would have been, I think, 1984 in Australia, a sort of, I don't know if you'd call it a documentary or a, what do you call those things that they look like a drama but it's designed to teach you something? Docudrama? A, a biopic? No, no it was like a docudrama. a docudrama. So docudrama. it's designed docudrama. to teach you stuff, but it's it's done like a film. So it was called The Day After and it was imagining limited nuclear strikes mm. in the UK. And you watch a family over the eight weeks after until it's into full nuclear winter and radiation sickness. Wow. And I remember going to school the next day and sitting there in, I think, year eight and everyone's just like, fuck. Mm. Why are we at school today? Why are we paying attention? Why do we care? And for half the day, everyone was just silent. And within the other half, we wouldn't behave. Mm. And the smart teachers basically gave up on us. Mm. Like one of my favourite teachers, Mr. Uwe, my you know, brilliant science teacher, just said, you lot are being horrible. I'll teach you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And essentially just let us not learn for the final half hour of the lesson. That so, wasn't very anti-fragile of you in response, though, was it? No, but well, we were all 12 in a room of other 12-year-olds going, fuck. <laughs> but, no, but I, I think the thing is, though, in the face of, I, I like to call it apocalyptic anxiety, right? Like you're, mm. you're fearful of an apocalypse, regardless of whether that's because of climate change or because you think something else awful is going to happen that's more you know, because of human... Uh, Clive Palmer. Right. That's no, the Clive's thing. not apocalyptic. You know, Kim Jong-un type. Clive's indigestion might be apocalyptic when he has a big lunch. <laughs> but I think... I think you can be anti-fragile in the face of that sort of anxiety. Mm. I think you can sort of go, it, it's that option to be like, well, I'm going to try to make the world a better place while I'm here. Mm. Yep. And, you know, if I can make my corner of the world a better place, even if the world does go up shit creek, I've done what I can. Yep. And I think there's something really, there's something to be said for that. And I think that's what I kind of try to do. Well, I think it's this thing that we've got back to a zillion times, mm. you know, between you and I in conversations. And that's the thing of being an exemplar. And Tim and I have talked about it multiple times too. You cannot personally on your own fix the world. No. The best you can do is be an exemplar of coping yeah. and coping by getting stronger, coping by getting more effective. Because coping is a word too much associated with being robust. To cope is to, to be the same today as you were yesterday. Coping is not enough. Do you know what's really frustrating about it being an exemplar though is... It's tiring. It is. It's incredibly tiring and... Most of the time, you just, instead of continually showing someone the way that you are, the way that maybe they should be in your eyes, 
is that you can't shake them and just make them wake up and no. and 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 you know tell them to do that thing. It's just that they have to observe you for however yep. long it takes them until it clicks yep. in their mind. Well, mm-hmm. why did we start the podcast? Well, you can lead yeah, the true. horse to water, but you can't make them drink it, yep. right? Yeah, but is it's, the podcast us telling us people? No, it's recognizing that we know an outlet, so we don't get frustrated. That was my point. Is oh, that's a good point. <laughs> is it? You know, we do the podcast so we can go look. This is what we would try and do, and maybe that will be useful to somebody because. You know you can't make anyone do anything. And part of, again, William Glass's choice theory. Mm -hmm. And the point of choice theory is you surrender external control over others. You do not bully or manipulate others into doing what you want. Otherwise, you've taken their ability to choose and be autonomous away. And that's Mm. unacceptable. Which means you can only show them what something looks like or tell them how their poor behavior affects you. And they have to choose to behave differently. You can't manipulate them into it. Mm. So part of, you know, for me, the reason of doing the podcast is, you know, I have great classes who learn. You're both in them. I have other classes that I want to throttle because they learn too slow. You know, I want to scream, wake up. But that would be external control. Mm. But, but don't you think part of it as well, and I think an important part of the podcast, it's not just you guys venting your frustration, you know, <laughs> well, not that they come across as frustrations, but I think it comes back to perhaps that point that I made earlier about, I think it's important for people just to be cognizant of these sorts of topics. Mm. People, I think, you know, I've realized this in talking to my dad a lot. I think a lot of people like thinking about these types of things. A lot of people like thinking about choices and a lot of people like Mm. thinking about things like anti-fragility, but perhaps they've never been able to put a name on it. Mm. They've never realized that there's this study behind it. They Mm. just kind of go, oh, that's just something that I do. Mm. Oh, I have the ability. They might use words like, oh, I have the ability to bounce back pretty well from stuff. Yeah. But I think if we actually start dissecting this sort of information and if people go, oh, there's a book on that, like somebody's actually researched this, yeah. I think there's a lot of power in that mm. because then it gives people sort of this sort of credibility to the way that they're thinking. Mm. They can put a name on it and they can start thinking about it more perhaps objectively or they can start yeah. looking at themselves and being more introspective because mm. they've heard about it. And, and so, so many people are alone in their big thoughts. Because they have them at two in the morning. By the next morning they go, I'm not sure I can articulate that. And even if I could articulate it, who am I going to articulate it to? Now the three of us are really lucky. Mm. You know, Tim can talk to his mum and dad who are both incredibly capable people. He can talk to Jade, you know, who just thinks about all sorts of big things. You know, Jess can talk to her dad about this or bug me or bug you, Tim. We all know who we're going to bug. I can wake up in the morning and elbow Karen and go, hey, Karen, here's a big thought before you're awake. Ha, <laughs> cop this. Your day's going to start with my big thought from 4 a.m. <laughs> now, not everyone has that. Mm. And when your dad's driving around, Jess, you know, doing his job, his job's to drive around, but he can listen to the podcast and go, right, I need another audio book for after I finish the podcast. Mm. Right, next book. Mm. So, you know, the power of not feeling alone in deep thought. The thing that is clear in ancient Greek thought is everyone wanted to hang out with other people that thought that much. Mm. The thing that is clear in ancient Chinese thought, everyone wanted to hang out with people that thought that much. Mm. The great difficulty in a modern world of we have access to all this information and we have all these little screens that can connect us, but they don't connect us in a way of surrounding us at a table with people with whom we can share our potential very deep thought that might be profound but certainly shows we're being vulnerable by sharing it. Mm. So you need somewhere where you can be safe enough to be vulnerable, to share a thought that might show how weird your thoughts are at 2am. 
Again, you thought up the podcast name at what? Midnight or something, didn't you? You were just falling asleep, I remember you telling me. Yeah. When you thought up Blind Insights. And again, you were comfortable enough to ask, hey, can Blind be in the name? And I was like, uh, yeah, that is okay. And in sense, truth in advertising is probably better. Now, I'm, I'm going to change the direction unless you guys have got something you want to add to that because no. I think it's a really important next step and we're kind of hitting at it. You know, Jess and I were talking about the podcast Wednesday when she graduated and she kind of giggled and said, I feel like an imposter, I can't be on the podcast. <laughs> and I giggled and said, well, I feel like an imposter every second podcast. <laughs> and I'm going to argue that a critical characteristic of trying to be anti-fragile mm. is feeling like an imposter mm. because when you are always taking little risks in order to grow, you of course feel outside of your comfort zone and the natural social consequence of feeling outside of your comfort zone is feeling like an imposter. Mm-hmm. And Tim, I don't know if you've ever thought it when we're doing the podcast. It has tapered off. It started, it's getting it's, less it's, bad. It's, it, well, I almost don't feel like I'm an imposter at all now. Well you. But it, it started off like awful. It yeah. was horrendous. I was just, I'm so intellectually incapable of being part of this conversation, but... I don't feel that way anymore. Whereas I think because I do have to deal with both being called Dumbledore and Rasputin by multiple ex-students. <laughs> I started it. <laughs> the other people picked up the names. They didn't have names. But there's a certain responsibility when you go from just being an exemplar to mm. then being a teacher. Mm. And the podcast is very similar. When I'm talking about it here, I'm not just being an exemplar. I'm actually trying to lay out how someone out there in the audience might want to give it a go. Mm. That's a little bit of a step. You know, it, it's hopefully not as far as external control psychology, but it is pushing and prodding a bit more than just being an exemplar. And I hope the discomfort lasts forever because if the discomfort's there, it means I'm keeping my ego under control and maybe I'm not right. Mm. And maybe three months from now, we have to revisit things because I've got a better answer. Also, I, I think you've been, you've, yeah, you've managed to make the guests that we've had on so far very comfortable. And we've kind of recognized that you don't necessarily have to have written three books to have a legitimate You just have to be awesome interested. Idea. Absolutely. Mm. Like Sam and, you know, Jaden are examples of the kind of people I want running treasury. Mm. They're just finishing uni. Doesn't matter. They know lots. They're enthusiastic and they're the people I want making decisions on economics. Mm. Morris and talking about evil, I probably come back to a lot, but it, the how he came to those conclusions, how, so how, important. He, how he went through all of that kind of literature, all of those ideas is important. And it, and it didn't come from, you know, he didn't write the New York bestseller, no. but it's equally as important as, you know, anything else that could have... And I would add something really interesting, and we probably need to ask Morris about this if we get a chance again. Mm. But in a sense, anti-fragility is not just physical and not just psychological in the way we've spoken about it. Morris started thinking about evil because he is a man of faith. Mm. And he had questions where the scriptural answers were not satisfying. And it's not that he was questioning his faith, Mm. but he wanted a deeper, broader answer that went with his faith but gave him more depth. Mm. So any fragility can be in any aspect of your life Mm. where you're willing to push to understand more by choosing to be a bit vulnerable, taking a risk to see what you can learn, to see what learning something new can make you. Mm. That's really the cycle here. 
Mm. Yeah. So feeling like an imposter when you come on, no hassle. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. It's sort of natural that you would um, experience imposter syndrome. Yeah. If you're constantly taking those types of risks and you're constantly putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. So your thing of fretting the end of last year about what to do at the end of uni. Yeah. Well, you were going to fret about whatever you did mm. because anything you picked, you were going to try so hard to do it in a new, slightly stressed, growing way. You knew you were going from relative comfort at the end of uni, relative comfort at the Royal Commission to you are going to up your discomfort level. Mm-hmm. And to know there's always a little bit of discomfort is fine. Mm. But to deliberately up the discomfort on top of your normal discomfort, that is genuinely uncomfortable. Well, to the point that I was – actually, this is going to make viewers um, chuckle a bit perhaps in the face of this podcast. I was recently diagnosed with adjustment disorder. Mm. So What's adjustment disorder? Adjustment disorder is when you – I guess you respond to uh, an intense change of circumstances in a way that's that that's impacted your mental health. Mm. Okay. So yeah, so and interestingly, so perhaps you know it's interesting coming back to what we were talking about with being sensitive, mm. you know, and perhaps and that coming across as fragile, mm. and perhaps I have been fragile in this moment. I, you know, in no, moving- I'd say you're so profoundly empathetic that in your desire to make sure other people are okay. Mm you get a bit lost helping other people to be okay. There's a really great book called Highly Sensitive People. Okay. And if you are a sensitive person, it is very empowering. Okay, okay I'll read it then. Mm. Thanks, Tim. Okay. Well, Jess's think- next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, I think I, I faced some big challenges when I first got to Sydney. So I moved to Sydney to work for Qantas. I became incredibly unwell, like got glandular fever, was bedridden. Uh, there was a car accident. What else happened? There was lots of different things There was at lots once. of drama all at once. Yeah, there was a relationship breakdown. There was a lot of different things happening at once. It made me incredibly unwell. But, yeah, I, I, I've been diagnosed with this. <laughs> the GP diagnosed me with this adjustment disorder. And so, you know, now I get therapy and things like that. So it's interesting. It, it was interesting listening to the Derek McManus podcast the other week. Um, and I thought, oh, isn't it interesting that he tapped out and got a psychologist quickly too? Yeah, but what you want to know is what you're doing is going to work. See, mm. you've just kind of confirmed the point we were talking about before. Mm. It's not, is something wrong? It's what are you going to do about that makes you anti-fragile? Right. Anti-fragility is to go, if I don't have the tools, I'm going to get the tools. Yes. And I'm going to train. So you know, Derek's point of training with the tools, mm-hmm. what we've been talking about is since we can remember as little kids mm. inventing tools and reusing the tools Mm -hmm. until the tools stuck. So really, immaterial of what the diagnosis was that you just got, you had tools, you might get some new tools, but the pattern is to use them. Yeah. That's the default setting. Yeah. No, that is the habituated setting, which is different to default. Default suggests there can't be another. Habituated can always be changed, and that is much truer to what people are and how we function. We mm. habituate to things. Mm. And again, we really haven't got to the, the depths of it and we can do it again in another podcast, but the, the thing we always come back to is why aren't more people habituated to trying to learn and apply anti-fragile tools? But do you think it's just there's an aspect where it's like, well, people just don't know about it? People I think haven't that's the biggest aspect because World mm. War Two shows when people needed to, they did. The mm. society needs to, it does. And yet the problem is now... Our society is on so many slow burns towards the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. 
Humans, you have time to switch on. If you do it now, by the time you really need it, you will be an expert exemplar of anti-fragility. <laughs> but why are you asleep? Mm. Other than the frustration of being blind, that's my most regular frustration. I think this ties in really well with what we spoke about last week with William Glasser yeah. in that not only are there people who are asleep and don't know about it, I think there are also people who are in such states that they know what they need to do but continue to do what they want to do. Yes. Right. Yeah, it's almost a form of discipline, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's all discipline, and this is why we keep coming back to little discipline practices. Mm. Again, I've got soft the last week with the freezing weather and the rain. <laughs> I now only go to cold water at the end of the shower and stay under the freezing cold water until my heart rate and breathing go back to normal. Yes. Mm. At the moment, it's taking about 140 seconds. Yeah. Mm. So I'm dealing with 140 seconds of real shit every morning. But that's okay. Another great quote, this is literally just some kind of meme that I read on Facebook, but <laughs> another great we'll take quote. take where we can get yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> is something worth doing is worth doing poorly, which is uh, an just adaption. Exactly. It's an adaption of uh, something worth doing is worth doing well. Okay. It basically says that if if you can't do it well, don't not do it. Mm. Just yeah. attempt it, Have to, a it go. to a poor extent. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So be, practice your anti-fragile tools poorly. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, actually, so David, that's something that you've always said that I do. I do a lot of, I do too many things, but I don't do any of them properly. Mm. Well, no, you want to do everything perfectly, but you spread yourself too thin. So you go, but it wasn't perfect on there. Who cares? It was good enough that people were impressed and the next door or window opened. So part of the thing that I think... I've given up on perfectionism because being blind, I couldn't be perfect in the way I wanted, so I'm just going to go screw it. I jettison perfectionism forever. Mm. Whereas you and Karen have that thing in common, you can't jettison your perfectionism or you haven't yet decided to. I don't know which. <laughs> but it's where when you two are talking, so you know, for listeners, this is when Jess is talking to my wife, Karen. Now, they are both perfectionists. It makes any day harder than it needs to be because even when they've done very good, they see the gap from very good to excellent. And mm. from an anti-fragile perspective, I don't give a shit about the gap from very good to excellent. Very good means you're alive, you learned, you'll do better tomorrow. Mm. That is my definition now of all that matters. Mm. Will today prepare you to do slightly better tomorrow? Mm. But a perfect day today would almost make life impossible because how would you do better tomorrow? That's true. It's like they can't be perfect people. About the only thing that can be is perfect chocolate and a perfect Russian imperial ale. Or <laughs> <right>, Rasputin. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, perhaps that's interesting. And I think it's, it's uh, what's, what's been good about this podcast, I think, is that it's like we can, we can tie back everything to anti-fragility, can't we? Because it's so yeah. central. Mm. It really is. And I think you can apply it to, to so many different facets. Mm. And that's one of the things that I love about philosophy, the way that you can sort of, you can find the nexus in these things and you can overlap concepts. Yep. And you know, it's just such a good platform for thinking about, well, how can we all become better people? And that's what will make it stick in the end. You know, it's a thing that in military terms is called defence in depth. Hmm. And it's something the Germans were bringing out on the Eastern Front and aren't given enough credit for. Mm. They would start a battle with the Russians, but having set up three fallback positions. Mm. When it looked like they were going to be overwhelmed, they fell back to a planned position mm. and fucked the Russians up again. Mm. Then when the Russians pushed hard again, the Germans fell back to the next prepared position. Mm. So something like the Battle of Kursk, the Soviets have pretended it's a victory, 
mediocre Western historians pretend it's a victory for the Soviet Union. How is it it's a victory for the Soviets when their casualty rate was a minimum of 15 to 1 times higher than the Germans? Whoa. The Germans prepared the ground and kept falling back to the next point where they could mess the Russians up. So another way to see anti-fragility is defence in depth. Even when it goes wrong, rather than being crushed, you go to a knee, assess, move to a better position, re-engage. Right, you've learnt from the, yeah. from the problem. But the problem from that historical situation was that it was a bit cold, right? Well, the problem was it was cold. They were out of good kit. They were out of good people. Yeah. Everyone was traumatised. Mm. And the Russians were winning World War Two on the Eastern Front with American kit because their own stuff was garbage. Yeah. So it's another lie the Soviets like to perpetrate. T-34 tank, it was awesome. Bullshit. You won World <laughs> War Two with Shermans. <laughs> So we'll get a historian on at some point and we'll have a screaming match. <laughs> <laughs> now, for people who are interested in this, best book on the Eastern Front is called Death Ride. Link in the description. Yeah, it's an awesome book because it's actually a guy who went, why would we trust the Soviets? They lied. Mm. <laughs> We'd probably trust the German army because they were terrible about the fact they couldn't help but keep perfect records. Mm. Even when they were losing, they kept perfect records. So we know exactly as they were losing World War Two that right up until you know the last three months of the war, the average body count for German units was ten to one Russians for one German. Mm. Fascinating. And Don't, way off track. <laughs> well, I was going to say, but speaking of World War Two, mm. uh, another interesting concept sort of overlapped mm. with um, anti fragility is thinking about Viktor Frankl's yeah, meaning and suffering. Yeah, yeah, well, that's one of my absolute favourite books. Yeah, you know, when Frankl's walking down that road in the snow and wants to die and realise if he puts his face in the snow, the German guard will happily put a rifle butt through the back of his skull. Right, like there's an anti-fragile man if I've ever seen yeah. Well, I haven't seen it, but, you yeah. know, if I've ever read about one. Yeah. But then he just goes, what if my wife lives? Yeah. So a very big part of anti-fragility is even when you just want to lay face down in the snow and have your skull crushed in, find a reason not to. <laughs> even if that's metaphorically. Yeah. Because <laughs> ideally you're not going to lay face down in the snow and have your skull crushed in by a rifle butt. Yeah. But it, you never know. But I do think that, though, because, you know, the point of anti-fragility is that you've gone through this stressful or adverse period. Yep. So, like, for me in my you know, recent experience where, you know, I've been diagnosed with this adjustment disorder, I, like, I've just overcome the stressful part. I'd like to think I've finished the stressful part, right? Yeah. But for me, a huge part of my growth through this and what I hope is part of my anti-fragility is I'm trying to find meaning within that suffering, yep. which sounds so cliched and I'm rolling my own true. eyes right here. But yeah, there is something to be said for it, right? It's about going, okay, well, what can I learn from this? How can I grow from this? Yep. You know, how can I be a better person from this experience? Even if <laughs> my experience of moving to Sydney, of course, is nothing compared to what somebody like Frankel went through. Yeah, but again, a, a but, critical thing, once you got the glandular fever, you're in a new city, you only know a few people, and you're homesick in bed mm. in an unfamiliar place with the cat. Who and the cat fleas. has put fleas in the house. Oh, no. So, oh, sorry, Lord. that is a bloody good reason to question why. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> a good not, time. There's not a lot of joy or meaning in sick in an unfamiliar place without the people that matter. With That's fleas. a pretty shitty moment in when, the scheme of things. When people try and compare their suffering to other people's suffering... No, just don't always, compare. Don't it's compare just, it. But nah. I, I like to bring up the point that we're actually we're actually limited by the biology of our emotions. Yes, they and just happen certain, and we have to deal. Certain 
certain inputs can receive the same emotional output even Precisely. if they're comparatively way different. So Precisely. it's, you know, whatever it is that's, you know, affecting you, uh, causing you to suffer is relative, yeah, isn't isn't strongly correlated with your emotional output. No, our so. emotional mm. output happened because we've suffered, mm. not mm. because of the level of suffering objectively. Yes. So it's up to us to it's deal relative. with our, yeah. our suffering mm. in the way we can. Mm-hmm. Not to try and put it on an objective scale because that's no use to us because we're feeling the emotions and the unconscious is taking over and the amygdala is taking over. Mm. And part of being anti-fragile is to go, look, I'm not going to deny these emotions. Mm. They exist, but I'm also not going to go under with them. Mm. Again, the, you know, the two big clobbers of my shins in the last few weeks. The rage about, fuck, why didn't my cane find <laughs> that? Why was my cane technique shit? Mm. Well, is this rage going to help? Mm. No. Mm. I'm going to be obnoxious to the person who makes my coffee or the bus driver. No, no. that is unacceptable behaviour. Right, and then that type of behaviour would actually inevitably lead you perhaps becoming more fragile yeah. because you would become more and more like you'd be like, oh, well, they're rubbish, they're rubbish, this is rubbish, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so it's a little bit that self It's the world's fault. Well, I'm not so. going outside anymore. Nah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it would, yes, exactly, probably for you. And that's it's the problem that you for blind people. They don't go house. outside anymore. Yeah. We've Why? gone so far off track, but this is what been an hour and a half. Yeah, uh, quarter past. It's it's good because there's about five minutes I need to take out at the start anyway, and it's fine. I think we should finish up though by maybe suggesting some books that are relative to what we've talked about today. So you've got uh, Viktor Frankl, yep. Man's Search, Search for, for Meaning. meaning. Yep. Every human on the planet well, should, should read, read that book. I'll have it in the description. And yes. there's uh, a wonderful book on post-traumatic growth called Upside by Jim Rendon mm-hmm. that would be a great way in actually Anti-Fragility by Nassim Nicholas Taleb is basically the worst way into Anti-Fragility yeah don't read it Did, should, should just, they just read the just watch his talk at Google on it okay. you would be better off of YouTubing Nassim. it yes you'd be better off yeah. listening to him than reading yeah. him okay. uh, it's a pain in the neck okay and in respect to uh, the coddling of the American mind is that also a, a, a kind it's of an indication track? of the passivity? Yes, mm. that's very okay. useful. And if you want to understand defense in depth, Death Ride is a perfect example mm. about how the German army were essentially anti fragile for four years. Mm. Do you think we would also recommend perhaps Atomic Habit? Well, Atomic Habits is if you decide you want to start getting these alternate habits, that's great. Mm. Uh, Eric Greitens' book, uh, Resilience mm. on How to Come Back from the Brink is very good now okay mm. Eric Greitens life has fallen to bits that doesn't diminish the quality of the book mm-hmm. alright and I'm gonna also just put in my highly sensitive people by yes. Isle Sand yeah well. definitely if definitely. you are finding yourself in that position is very empowering cool alright thank you very much Jess our very first female guest thank you Jess <laughs> thank you guys it's been wonderful like, what can you uh, tell the other females out there that we've been trying to convince to come on the show I would say don't have imposters well I've got imposter syndrome right now but it's been great I've I've had a really wonderful time and even though I still don't feel entirely qualified to be on this podcast it's been a good time and I hope listeners, listeners have enjoyed listening to uh, what we have to say well I certainly have and you've become more calm over the course yeah. of the show yep <laughs> Yeah, you've, you've now got your radio voice. I've yes. loosened up. Number two will be awesome. <laughs> uh-huh. And yeah, we don't bite. So yeah, thank you very much. Well, David. only if people ask us. That's a whole other issue. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Bye. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. 
thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Peace out.